0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give your people grace as we discern more about the nature of our enemy this afternoon and more about the nature of his children, that we may understand how to oppose these better in this lost and dying world. Pray for a movement of the Holy Spirit to apply these things to our hearts, to our minds. We pray for a supernatural understanding to be granted to us because we recognize that this exercise is supernatural in nature. I am not a professor, and these are not my students. We require a supernatural illumination, Lord, and we seek it from you. And we pray as your people that it may be granted to us. And we also pray for those who are here who do not know you, that they would come to know you even today, recognizing that outside of you, Lord Jesus, they have no protection against the predations of the devil. Bless us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What motivates Satan most is always, has always been, and will always be the acquisition of power, because the imposing of his nefarious will depends upon it. and So the same is true of his children, given that they bear his spiritual nature. Every sin that they commit serves this greater end. And to illustrate this to you, I can actually use the Decalogue as a guide. So, for example, why do unbelievers transgress the first four commands, all of which pertain to worshiping God? Well, because for them to honor Yahweh by worshiping him would be to ascribe him power as their supreme ruler, and that means taking that same power away from themselves. And why do they transgress the fifth commandment? Well, because this would assign power to their parents and not to them. And the sixth, they will not abide either because it withholds from them one of the most intrinsically divine categories of authority, and that is the power to end life. And if you haven't noticed, unbelievers are absolutely drunk on this power in our day. I will say, though, that that's not exclusive to our day. This has been in effect in every generation amongst the children of the devil, though manifest in different ways. In ours, it's most prevalent in abortion, of course. And the seventh commandment, they also violate in this instance because they won't relinquish power over their bodies to the spouse of their covenant and ultimately to God who instituted the covenant of marriage in the first place. And they violate the Eighth Commandment because to steal land or property is to ultimately steal power. That's the power to buy, sell, produce, profit, and the power derived from the influence that's gained from the wealth that has been profited. And the Ninth Commandment is very much like the Sixth, Because when you bear false witness against somebody, you are murdering them with your mouth. And so the underlying motive is the same. Taking unto yourself the power of life and death, destroying their reputation. Finally, there is covetousness. Covetousness is a claim in mind and soul to the power that only rightly belongs to our creator. And that is the power of being ultimate proprietor. Same power that he claims unto himself uniquely and exclusively in Psalm 24.1, amongst many other places, but there, the psalmist says, the earth is Yahweh's as well as its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Now the covetous person actually wholeheartedly agrees with that so long as you take their name and put it in the place of Yahweh's. So then they could say the earth is mine as well as its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Even though they cannot achieve this, that is the desire of the covetous heart. Now, because power most animates the children of Satan, the more angles that you threaten their power from, the more opposition you can expect to receive from them in response. And this is a big part of what accounts for satanic escalation in every place that the gospel takes root and bears fruit. Let me give you that predictable process enumerated. Step number one, the gospel is preached Souls are taken from Satan, and they are transferred to Christ. And when this happens, there will be vehement opposition. You will feel, you will see the rage of the devil in response, and you have seen that throughout the book of Acts consistently. Then going back to the first instance of great revival in this book, that, of course, being Acts chapter 2, what effect do you think that the revival which resulted from the preaching of the gospel, had on the Sanhedrin's bottom line. What do you think that does to their budget when you get 3,000 assuming tithing Jews converting to Christianity and now taking all of those resources and allocating them to the furtherance of Christ's kingdom instead? Well, that leads to step number two, which is that money starts getting taken away from Satan too. Pursuant to the transfer of souls, there is a transfer of wealth. And that is a problem for the devil because not only does Christ's kingdom require financial support, so does his. But unlike the Lord Jesus, he can't just pull money from the mouth of a fish. So budgeting gets a little sketchy when accounts receivable takes a major hit because of the gospel-producing revival. But from here, I'll just briefly glance at the next steps. This involves mass conversion in whole provinces, whole societies, then whole empires. And along with this, of course, comes the redemption of the institutional powers within said provinces and societies and empires, be these institutions of financial nature or political or military, or as we see in our day, all of the above, because all secular and pagan institutions of governance are inextricably interrelated. This is where Christianity in Rome, of course, is headed like a bullet in the early church epoch. Uh, the reason that I just glance at those latter steps so that you know is not because they are not thrilling to consider and should not be considered. The reason I merely glance at those is because in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 16, we are in that second stage of the transfer of power from Satan's kingdom to Christ's. And we are seeing this here as it has not yet been seen by us in the book of Acts, resulting from the conversion of, of the Gentiles, and so this transfer of wealth will be our focus today. And spoiler alert, although if you have been paying attention up to now, I don't think this will be much of a spoiler, Satan is going to try to white-knuckle this thing. He's not going to let go willingly. Clenched fists, he's going to try to hold on as long as he can, but of course Christ is just going to pry his fingers loose and impose his will anyhow, because that's the way that this works, when you are sovereign king. And our Lord will accomplish this both miraculously and providentially. And we will see that today as we expound upon these things. And we will handle this this week much like we did last week, which is that we will read all of verses 16 through 40 together. Because again, that comprises one whole story. And we don't want to lose sight of that cohesive whole. Then though, we will circle back in this instance to the events of verses 19 through 24, which we will exegete and apply not in isolation, but as our primary emphasis. So pick up with me once more in verse 16. Now it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a servant girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, "'These men are slaves of the Most High God, "'who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation.'" And she continued doing this for many days, but being greatly annoyed, Paul turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to leave her, and it left at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit had left, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities, and when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs that are not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And the crowd joined together to attack them, and the chief magistrates, tearing their garments off of them, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods, and when they had inflicted them with many wounds, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely, who, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the jailhouse were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your house. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his household. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into the house and set food before them, and greatly rejoiced with his whole household because he had believed in God. Now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, Having beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, they have thrown us into prison. And now they are sending us away secretly. No, indeed but let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept requesting them to leave the city, and they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brothers, they encouraged them and left. Now, Because I think that the best way to handle this is to take it phrase by phrase in order to understand the historical context and I start back with you in verse 18 and do just this. And we will stop and explain as it is prudent to do so. Verse 18 She, the demon possessed oracle of Apollo, continued doing this for many days, but being greatly annoyed, Paul turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to leave her. And it left at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit had left, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, and before we get to what they said, we will pause. In order to recognize the 30,000 foot general zeitgeist kind of reality concerning first century Rome, that is, that this is a pluralistic civilization, religiously. Meaning that out of the pantheon of gods, you can worship whichever god you wanted, you could worship whichever ones. You wanted, you could worship whatever combination of whichever ones you wanted. Figuratively speaking, then you could say that there was great harmony on Mount Olympus and at the base of the mountain where all the worshipers congregated. But this peace and cooperation existed because none of the Greco-Roman gods really threatened any of the others. Now, if you know something of Greek mythology, you do know that there were all kinds of uh, rivals rivalries between gods and demigods. But that was mythology, and it was not manifesting in reality in like warring factions fighting on behalf of this god or that god. Not at least under the Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace which was accomplished at the edge of a Roman sword, and Rome most certainly would not have tolerated that kind of discord in the population. So that is one aspect of what is preserving their pluralism. But another big part of this cooperation was financial in nature. And to illustrate this concept, I want you to think about a downtown near you and a coffee shop in that downtown and say the prospect of a new Chinese restaurant moving in next door to them. Do they object to this? No. Because not only does the selling of Chinese food not take anything away from them as a coffee shop, it in fact brings more people to the downtown area which will help the coffee shop. More foot traffic is more foot traffic and that benefits everybody. And so it is in Satan's economy. Competition is kept to a minimum, cooperation is promoted. To apply this, going back to last week's lesson, if you seek a knowledge of the future, you would go to, of course, Apollo, primarily, and you would pay for this privilege. You would pay his priests. You would give money to support that whole temple system. But in doing so, you wouldn't be robbing anything from, say, Asclepius. Because if you needed healing, which you do, because you're a person and we all break down, you'd still have to go to him, pay his priests. And if you have other biological urges, which we all do, and you're a pagan, so say you need sex, you go to Diana and you pay her priests and her prostitutes supporting that whole temple system. And so nobody's upsetting the apple cart here. Everybody's making money. Everybody is happy. Christ, however, is not a part of that catalog. And he is not going to be a part of that catalog. Paul did not have a chariot. But if he had had a chariot and it had had a bumper, it would not have had a sticker on it that said coexist. Because Christianity does not coexist. Its objective and its effect is to cast down every other religion and every fake God, which is all but Yahweh, who is, of course, the actual source of all of the blessings purportedly being provided by the gods. This is the beginning of the establishment of a Christian hegemony. And this is accomplished by bleeding Satan's coffers dry, Satan's coffers of every category. Ones that are filled with souls and the ones that are filled with money. And we as present day American Christians should seek that latter end and celebrate it too. Because I don't think that the devil's children losing money is an inconsequential or unintended side effect. I think it's one of Christ's strategic goals. And that is evident, seen here in Acts 16, it's really evident when we get to the account in Ephesus where there's a riot because Paul's ministry has cost the Ephesian idol peddlers so much money. And you'll also see this happening broadly as Christianity expands if you'll take three steps back and consider the history. For example, one of the most profitable enterprises in Rome was the Gladiator Games, and these of course were a satanic stronghold for Satan for centuries. Because, in part, they were so profitable. So many people were making so much money. Their equivalent of Hollywood movie stars were gladiators. A lot of people made a lot of money off of them. And this remained the case until the gospel made it unprofitable. It isn't the whole story, but it is part of it. You remember me telling you that account of a man named Telemachus? Okay, who comes... Beginning of the 5th century, very beginning of the 5th century to Rome. He's a Christian minister and he wanders into the Colosseum not knowing what's happening inside of there, but he sees a lot of people funneling in. And then he sees people murdering other people for sport and for the amusement of the crowd. And he cries out, In the name of Christ, forbear! Or in the name of Christ, stop! And then nobody listens and everybody mocks him, so he takes to the floor of the Colosseum, continues to do that, and one of the gladiators pulls out his sword and cuts him down right there in front of the whole crowd. And for the first time, they are not amused at the sight of somebody being murdered. They are horrified. They are shown a mirror image of what they actually are. And because of that public sentiment shifting, this becomes unprofitable, but also it makes it all the way to the emperor, and he outlaws it. These things are connected. Now, that is where Rome ended up, Unfortunately, though, we are headed in the opposite direction. Stream is flowing in reverse. Planned Parenthood, for example, is reportedly earning $1.6 billion a year and has $2 billion in assets. And I think I heard yesterday they received something like $600,000 in your taxpayer money through means that they're not supposed to be able to acquire said monies because of the Hyde Amendment, but the state doesn't care about the rules, so... You're paying for it. Now, what was that money being used for prior to the passage of so-called abortion rights at a time when you had a civilization that was much more righteous? Well, they were probably being used for something much more righteous. Consider also the American porn industry, which generates between 10 and $12 billion a year. Now consider that while for our wicked government money is printable, for the rest of us it is simply fungible, which means that what was being spent on righteousness is now being spent on wickedness of the aforementioned kinds and many, many more. Financial systems, money, it's a zero-sum situation. And unfortunately, a present Orthodox Church of Christ on earth is much closer to the sum of zero than Satan's cohort is. But to the praise of God's glory in Acts, stream is again flowing in the opposite direction from us because Christ has made it so. And the strategic purpose behind the Lord doing this is obvious. You have no pagan temples if you have no money to support them. You have no priests if you cannot pay their salaries or oracles or pagan institutions. If you take away the money, you take away the power, and you kneecap Satan. But this does take time as the Telemachus situation demonstrates. That was all the way in the 5th century. Rome's pagan institutions were not built by Satan's economy in a day, and they aren't going to be supplanted in a day either. And in the interim, brother, is there going to be a fight? Case in point, verses 19 through 23. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit had left, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace Before the authorities, and when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs that are not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And the crowd joined together to attack them, and the chief magistrates, tearing their garments off of them, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods, and when they had inflicted them with many wounds, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. People get really, really angry when you start to disrupt their profit centers. At First, I want you to consider the actual accusation itself. These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews and are proclaiming customs that are not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. That is completely false. Every element of that is false. First off, the city's not being thrown into confusion. It is in confusion. It is Paul that is bringing the light of truth into it with Silas, and the other two men that are there as well. And the truth that they are pronouncing just literally cast out a demon whose whole purpose on earth was to do nothing but confuse and obscure. And let us pause here and make a point of application Christian. Because what is happening here is going to happen to you if you live for Christ in public, which is, of course, the only way to live for Christ. You are going to be accused of being a thief who steals people's clarity and stability and certainty and unity and cultural cohesion. You will hear things like, we'd all be getting along famously if it weren't for those Christians and their intolerance. Now, that accusation is coming. And it's been being issued for a really long time. It is their constant refrain. But when you are accused of this, you should... Tell your slanderers that you cannot steal what the person that you're supposedly stealing from does not possess, which is clarity in opposition to confusion. As people have none of that because that requires truth. And Pilate well represented the broader Roman perspective when he cynically asked, basically, what even is truth? Is that a thing? Is that a category? We don't recognize that as a category. They didn't. So the idea that Paul is taking away its consequent clarity falls flat. And in fact, the concern for clarity instead of confusion isn't just unintentionally ironic, it's also entirely fake. The men who were profiting off of this demon-possessed girl were not concerned with truth and peace as they claimed to be. They were simply concerned with defending the routine, the status quo, that same which was making them so much money which is to say that they were just defenders of their money. And it is the same in our day. Those who most ardently defend the system in place are those who are sitting atop it and benefiting from it materially the most. Uh, Sometimes these people may be truly committed to their cause, but often they know that they are lying and the souls that they are damning with their lies are just the price of doing business. They consume the consumers that make them so much money. So when they come at you with that kind of an accusation, as they will, like Paul, do not take the bait at all. Don't ever, ever apologize. Nor should you let their lies go unanswered. You can do two things simultaneously, and that is that you can give the light of the gospel and you can reveal that the charge that we create, confusion, is just projection from our enemies as they do the thing that they accuse us of doing. They take the focus off of themselves. They are the darkness. We are the light. And that is not just the nature of our ministries. It also needs to be communicated in our message as well. Next, though, note that Paul and Silas are also not breaking the law. And I'll give you some historical context to help prove this uh, in a bit. But first, just take what's written and reason through it. Okay, the magistrates end up seeking the release of Paul and Silas on their own. Okay, so you have two options here. Option number one, they grow a conscience all of a sudden. And they say, you know what, we shouldn't have just impulsively, severely beaten you. Oops, our bad, we really feel bad about it. After sleeping on it for a night, we've decided to let you go. Or you have option number two. And that is that they know full well what they've always known, which is that they never had any legitimate grounds to punish them at all, and that they wouldn't be able to justify this to any of their higher-ups upon scrutiny of this situation at a later point. Even before they know that these men are Roman citizens, they know this, and so they seek to get them out before they can receive any kind of a penalty for having done what they have done. Indeed, that's the case. Now, as to the historical case, understand that Paul and Silas are not seen here as Christians. They are seen as Jews. Ergo, these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews. So when the local authorities caved to the ravings of the mob, which is what happened, they did so so fast that they didn't even have a chance to understand the nature of Paul's message and that, yes, he was Jewish ethnically, but he was also a follower of Jesus. So to them, he is just another Jew preaching that same old Jew message. Point is that obviously Jews proselytizing in this way was not a crime. If it were a crime, we wouldn't be encountering so many Jewish proselytes everywhere in this book, latest example being Lydia. And Further, we wouldn't have so many synagogues spread around the ancient world, would we? They certainly would not allow those to be built in various different places as they have if this were not permitted. Now, there was a kind of nebulous disturbing the peace law. We have these in our day and sometimes they are used for good as a catch-all by police officers who are attempting to do good, and sometimes they are used for evil by police officers that are evil. And they have this kind of in place and sort of falls into this sort of a situation, perhaps. But if it does, it's not Paul and Silas who are violating this sort of law because the disturbance wasn't being caused by them but the agitators in the crowd who were being led by this now freed, formerly demon-possessed girl's masters. Frankly, though, even if Paul and Silas had broken such a law, it would be a moot point because the magistrates skipped that whole discovery phase and went right to beating them. Finally, the accusation levied against them is not true because Paul and Silas are not Jews, not at least in the way that they mean. Obviously, they are Jews. They are fully Jews. But what they mean is that these are only Jews. That's not true. They're also Roman citizens. Which means that, well, Paul and Silas have not committed a crime. The magistrates sure as heck have. Thus their response and their fear, as seen in the text. None of their treatment of Paul and Silas was permissible by law without first holding a lawful trial, which they didn't. Without this, the actions of the magistrates could very well have caused them to be stripped of all of their powers. And this is why, upon discovering later that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens, they kept requesting, or you could literally interpret that, incessantly begging them to leave. And that is very different than forcing them out of the city, isn't it? They're not forcing, they're pleading. Magistrates unknowingly way overplayed their hand, and so now the lowly missionaries have all the leverage in this situation. Probably some broken bones too, but at least they have a bit of an upper hand. In fact, a lot of an upper hand. So the authorities effectively grovel because they like their jobs and they like their titles, and I think they especially like their titles. As Caesar hears of this, they will almost certainly lose both, and you can probably assume that they profit from their positions and they don't want to lose that either. So the accusation is a farce all the way through. Now that you know that, though, question I would like to ask you that I ask myself is why would ostensibly serious men have responded this, to this so impulsively? And these are serious men. Because they wouldn't have attained the position that they have attained if they weren't. They take their careers very seriously. They have worked their way up. They have now much to lose. They have acquired what they have through much diligent work. Why are they willing to risk all of this, their careers, their reputations, all the profit that comes from these things in order to shoot first and ask questions later? I think the answer is twofold. First, because of an enraged satanic frenzy that swept through the general population and swept them up into it as well. Second, they have an utter lack of integrity as deacons of God acting on his behalf in the political realm who are supposed to be wielding the sword for the sake of righteousness. I will deal with the first aspect of this now. The second, though, we will leave to next time I speak to you about this from the book of Acts because we are going to pack that out considerably and understand the implications for us in the political realm as well but let me remind you of the crowd's involvement again before we begin verse 22 when the crowd joined together to attack them and the chief magistrates tearing their garments off of them proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods appear that what has happened here is that the crowds were manipulated by the slave girls owners they sold the idea that the current conflict was Paul's fault and they found an enthusiastic buyer in the mob. You no doubt know from watching the news in our day that it's not difficult to get mobs to buy things like this. Is it really just takes a whisper and a suggestion, and then everybody starts thoughtlessly tearing everything down, paying no mind to the consequences? And then the sons of the devil magistrates who obviously have no spines and no character, no compunction, cave immediately. Now let's take a couple steps back and find some intellectual and spiritual high ground so that we can survey the broader development of certain patterns that we continue to see in this book. And One subject like this that I find absolutely fascinating is the pathology of sin which is well exhibited here. At any point, somebody could have just asked the critical questions. Paul, what actually is your message? What is your religion? Are you a citizen? Or they could have asked amongst themselves questions like, do we know the status of his citizenship? Or what potential connections might he have even if he's not a citizen that could harm us? Or what will be the potential consequences to us for wrongful punishment of these men and if they had done any of this, there still would have been a strong likelihood that they would have been able to satisfy their evil desire to beat a Jew, any Jew. Because what actually are the odds that these two random Jewish preachers are citizens? Not impossible, obviously, but not great either. But they give no thought to the consequences. And the same is true of their father in this situation, who is Satan. This will end up being a serious strategic blunder. This is going to cost the devil in Philippi tremendously. Christianity was under the boot of Satan prior to this. The Jews, who would have been much more highly regarded and represented a much more established religion in the minds of the Romans, were relegated to meeting outside of the city gate in the open air. What do you think was going to happen to the Christians? You think they were going to be given a place to meet inside of the city and tolerated? No. They are now, though. They are now. Because they have given leverage to Paul. And the magistrates now have the knowledge that if he uses that leverage against them, it will cost them greatly. Satan lost here big time. And now as a consequence of this, Christianity has room to stretch its legs, so to speak. Create more Lydia's, take more profit away from the devil that way, relieve more demoniacs of the demons that are possessing them, taking more money out of the system that way and more souls as well? How is it possible, though, that he who is the father of the fallen nature so myopically falls into this trap? when all that he needed to do to avoid it was engage in like 90 seconds of questions and answers through his children. The answer is because Satan is double-minded. And one of those minds is a keen observer of fallen human nature and also Christianity. I don't think that Satan could have anticipated the development of sin in general in his children all through the ages, I think that what he starts is a disease and then from there you have various different mutations that occur, but he has observed all of these mutations. At this point, he studied us for thousands of years and he is intimately familiar with our tendencies and our propensities. Again, he is the father of all of these things. Of course, he would be intimately familiar with this. And he has also been there through the development of our faith since the promise of Genesis 3, and then he was there through the deliverance of a Messiah, and then he was there for the advent of the church, and he has seen it now at this point develop for two decades. And so, because of that, he is capable of tremendous strategy at times, but that is his one mind. The other mind is pure id to invoke Freudian philosophy, which I generally would stay away from considering that I am a preacher and he was one of the chief sons of the devil, but I think it fits here considering that I am referring to Freud's father and the true author of his work. And it is just emotion. It's just animalistic instinct. And you'll see the devil respond in that way too. Let me illustrate this duality from his example in Scripture. Ananias and Sapphira is incredibly strategic. It comes to naught because of the way that it's dealt with by the Holy Spirit and that whole public execution thing. But that is tailor-made for compromise. And I raised this to you when we went through that. They haven't completely lied. They just sort of lied. And still, if he takes their money, Peter, church benefits from that. Doesn't have to compromise everything, just has to compromise a little, a little evil that good may come. That's all that needed to happen. That was a dark kind of wisdom, giving credit to whom credit is due. And I think you can see a similar effect in the recent slave girl demoniac in her approach. You recall I raised that. Now this pretty young thing that seems to be agreeing with Paul, and she has great favor with the people. How does he deal with this situation? Again, that comes to naught because Christ is still king and there is no wisdom like his, but you can see strategy in this. This, by the way, is, I think, part of the reason why we should regard him with due respect as Michael did as recorded in Jude. That would be the archangel Michael. On the other hand, though, the devil is a creature enslaved to his own base instinct and impulses and unable to rise above them even if rationality was screaming at him. And everyone in this room understands this element of his nature better than we would like to because as his former children, we have all done the same. Everyone in this room has been in a situation where you understood rationally that the consequences of a certain course of action would be devastating. Devastating for you, devastating for you in light of intrapersonal relationships that you have, that the consequences would flow down from you onto other people. And so you say no, but then the impulse grows and it grows and it grows and it grows and you cave. Rationality be darned. I will have what I will have irrespective of the consequences. Where do you think that impulse comes from? What do you think it means to say that Satan is the father of unbelievers? That's what it means. This is not something that they can control. Yes, Satan in Eden became a father of the unbelieving. He also became a slave of the disease that he himself brought into the universe. And you can see this in biblical examples as well. Crucifixion, chief among them. That is unbelievable. And to go back to that metaphor that occurs in Genesis 3, you can see the lack of strategy there on the, part of the Satan, uh, on the part of the serpent, can't you? Where does the serpent bite? The heel. He puts himself fundamentally at a disadvantage because of the way that he attacks. What are you going to do to a snake that bites your heel? You're going to drop your foot and crush its head. And that's exactly what happened. And he was there when Isaiah was saying that stuff out loud, and Moses too, and all the prophets besides them. And yet he precipitates the very events that lead to his greatest destruction, indwelling Judas personally. Because again, being a pure id, he just had to do it. You can also see a similar effect, as I just raised to you, in the events at Philippi. Now the church has uh, a period of time where they will be allowed to grow unmolested by the authorities because of what they have just done. And this second mind, as I'm calling it, is another reason why he loses to Christ every time. Of course, most importantly, he loses because Christ is sovereign and omnipotent. But Christ and his people are able to respond to reason, which is always righteous. That is what reason is. That is what logic is. However you think of that, you need to think of it in terms of that which comports and is consistent with the mind of God. World has all kinds of definitions for what wisdom actually is. That's the only one that matters. That's the truth. If it is consistent with the mind of God, it is reasonable and rational and right. If it is not, it is not. But we are a body with a very much thinking head. A head that possesses all wisdom, in fact. Satan's children, though, are a thoughtless, rageful mob. And so it is simply not in their nature to be able to maintain power. In fact, from the very moment that they acquire power and assume that role over the institutions, they begin to destroy that which they have acquired happened in Rome, it's happening now in the West, because they just tear everything down all the time. And something else that should encourage you is understanding that they're not actually as strategically aligned as they appear. Spurgeon, I can't remember the exact quote, he famously, though, lamented the lack of Christian unity and, and said basically that if Christians were as unified as Satan and as demons, we would be vastly more effective. I understand what he was saying, and far be it from me to disagree with the prince of preachers, and I'm not actually. I was simply to that the appearance of unity amongst them is very easy to fake, because their only real modus operandi is tear it all down. They don't have to build anything. It's very easy to just contradict in every way that you possibly can the created order and they can do this in all pockets and places of the world at the same time and it seems like there's great cohesion and great unity. No, it's just screw up as much stuff as you can as fast as you can everywhere that you can. Perhaps we give them too much. Perhaps we credit them with too much. They are beings of the flesh entirely and they tear down indiscriminately we in contrast have our approach written down in second corinthians 10:4 through 6 the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds as we tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is fulfilled. We are thinking. And our thoughts are informed by the mind of the living God. And so as we have in every single civilization where the gospel has taken root, we'll win we will see their systems raised to the ground. History ebbs and flows. But people who behave like mindless animals will never rule anything long. And that is the nature of the children of the devil as seen here and as seen in our day. And I would implore you once more in closing, if you are here and you are on the wrong side of this, not to be an instrument used in this raising with a Z because the instruments are not honored. They are destroyed along with the civilization that they destroy. We pray that you will turn to Christ for protection and he will, through his wisdom, carry you through all of these circumstances and all of what is coming and you'll receive the greatest reward of them all, which is... Turn in faith to Jesus today, trusting in his perfect life, his sufficient death, power of his resurrection to give you eternal life. And then you needn't worry about what happens to the strongholds of Satan on this earth in the interim, in the short term. Because all of history is moving towards a consummation. And at that point, all will be conquered by Christ and it will remain so forevermore. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for these things. We thank you for the way that you control all things. We thank you for the providence of them overplaying their hand in this way in the space that that allows for the Christians to flourish at Philippi. We thank you for the example of this. Lord, you are not the great chess player, as certain heresies have represented you, as you are not anticipating the movements of the enemy. You are sovereign Lord over the pieces, over the board, over all the players, over all that is involved. You bend all of human history to your will, and it is awesome to behold. And we as your people are profoundly grateful to simply get to be a part of it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.